Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 19, verses 15 through 30 is what we're going to be looking at today. This is the story of Sodom, all right? This is Lot's living in Sodom. Lot had some strangers stop by the city. He paid deference to them. He invited them into his house. The two men go with him to the house. And while they're inside, after they ate a modest meal, they end up being interrupted just before they go to bed by the mob outside. There's a mob of men from, it sounds like, all quarters of the city, all ends of the city, and and includes multiple age groups, all right? So it was multi-generational all throughout the city, and they're banging on the door and send out the men. We want to have sex with them. And Lot goes out there and greets them and says, don't do so wickedly. And then they get mad at him. And they say, oh, you're going to be a judge, huh? You're a new guy. You're the foreigner. You're going to come in. You're going to judge us. We'll treat you worse than we'll treat them. So it sounds like they're not going to satisfy themselves just with the two men. They want to now throw Lot into the mix. Two men, as you'll remember, they uh, they reach through. They pull Lot into the house. They blind the men outside. They seal the door, and they say, basically, it's time to go. It's time to get out. All right, so we're picking up pretty much where we left off there. A little bit more that I had there was basically from last week. You remember that Lot went to talk to his sons. His law says, hey, judgment is coming. Let's get out of here. And they laugh at him. So that was a momentous night in Sodom, I think was the title of the message from last week. A momentous night in Sodom. And this week opening up with the morning. All right. So the night is pretty much ending. Here's the morning. Morning's coming. Verse 15. Somebody mind reading verse 15. Coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, and you will be swept away when the city is punished. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So Dave's version that he's reading is the New Living Translation, probably. That one has hurry. NIV also has hurry. Actually, that's probably the one you're reading, if I recognize the word. Uh, ESV has up. New King James Version has arise. These are words of action. These are like, you know what? You can't stay here anymore. It's time to get out. It's time to move. It's That time is now. All right? I like how in this verse we have a time reference. We have when the morning dawned. We've seen this quite a few times in the story of Abraham as we've been going on. We had in chapter 15 as the sun was setting. We had in chapter 18 in the heat of the day. These time references. We had in chapter 19 in the evening. Also in 19 when dawn breaks. Here in 19 and verse 23 we'll get to later is with sunrise. And we've got this one here obviously when the morning is dawning. So we've got these different time references. I kind of like that. You know, it feels like details that they're probably there for a purpose. And I don't know what the purpose is. So it encourages me to keep reading God's word because... I know that every word in, in here, in, in the Bible, in God's word, is there for a reason. And I'm never going to exhaust all there is to know about God's word. So when I see things like that, and I suspect there's probably a reason behind it, and I don't know what the reason is yet, I look forward to the next time I'll be passing through, because I'll probably have picked up something more than this time. So little hints here and there that there's probably something behind those things. Verse 16, somebody might reading verse 16. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. So here we have in verse 16 the indication that Lot is lingering or hesitating. 
Why is he hesitating? What are some reasons we might be able to come up with why he's hesitating? We're not told exactly why. So we're left to speculate with the understanding that we're, we're speculating here. Why would you think maybe one of the reasons might be that he might linger? He's leaving home. He's leaving home. Okay, there's a reason. So that... He doesn't know where, where he's going. Good. What's another reason why he might be lingering or hesitating? It's comfortable there. It's comfortable. Nobody likes change, right? Yeah. This is going to be a big change to leave your home and to move out of where you're comfortable. Fear, fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. Right, fear of the unknown. How many of these things are similar maybe in our lives to keep us from moving from a place where if we were to stay, it might destroy us? And we could probably come up with more. His livelihood, right? His business connections. All right? The familiarity and the comfort, as Ron was mentioning. Maybe he's got a daily routine. And moving out of that place is going to involve a change to your routine. All right? Maybe there's people he's got relationships with. Is that what you're going to say? Maybe he's got relationships. You know, he looks forward to the next day of seeing, you know, Bob or Joe or whoever it might be. All right? And all these reasons kind of hearken to us and, and echo in our lives. I'm not a whole lot different than that. Or maybe just disbelief. Or maybe just disbelief. Like, is this really true? Is this really going to happen? Is this really that imminent? I tell you what, we live in California, right? We live in California, and this is earthquake country. And we're due for the big one, right? Every 300 years. They say every 300 years we're going to get a big one, right? And we're due. It's been 300 years. You look at your you know, geological watch and you go, it's time. But then what happens? We don't move out. If we knew it was going to be tomorrow, we might, but we don't know when it's going to be. And so we kind of wonder if it's really going to happen. We wonder, is it really going to affect me? How big is it really going to be? Is it really going to be something that I need to move? Or maybe I can just stay here. Lot's probably going through some of those same things where he's going, is this really going to affect me? Do I really need to move? How far do I need to go if I do need to go? And what am I leaving behind? I don't want to leave those things behind. And all of this is causing a hesitation in his life. Again, we're speculating. We don't know what the reasons are, but we can see just by our speculations, I'm not a whole lot different than him. Instead of pointing the finger at Lot and saying, oh, that guy, he's being ridiculous. All of a sudden we start to see, I can kind of identify with him a little bit. So while he lingered or when he hesitated, the man took hold of his hand. What man are these? Angels. Angels, right? The angels are grabbing his hand, right? The man took hold of his hand. The angels took hold of his hand, the hand of his wife, hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. Here's one of the things I, I think is really interesting about this verse is that phrase, the Lord being merciful or the Lord being compassionate to him. The Lord, you don't need to have that phrase there. You can remove that phrase and, and it still makes sense, right? Mm -hmm, sure. Then the man took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, the hand of his two daughters, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. You don't even need that phrase. But that phrase is included in there. The Lord being merciful to him. Sometimes the Lord's mercy extended to us, sometimes the Lord's compassion extended to us is painful. Because what is the Lord's mercy here? It's ripping him away from everything he doesn't want to leave behind. The Lord is being merciful to him, and in his perspective, this is going to be really painful. This is going to hurt. In our lives, sometimes the Lord has us ripped away from things that would result in our destruction. And it's painful but in the process, the overarching theme is God being merciful to us. He's ripping us from something we shouldn't be so attached to. He's ripping us out of a place we shouldn't be staying and with the intention that we get to a place that's safer. Sometimes the Lord does the same with us and we go, oh, this is horrible. And all the while, it's God's mercy being shown to us and we're living in his mercy in going through that painful process.
it still constitute God being merciful to him. Because we all know what the end result would have been. If God hadn't ripped him from all those things he had grown accustomed to, he'd still be there and he'd be destroyed with the city. Sorry if I gave it away. If you haven't known the rest of the chapter and what's going to be talked about, Sodom gets destroyed. We'll find that out soon. Sorry. <laughs> what do they call those when, when somebody ruins the movie for us? Spoiler. Sorry, I should have given a spoiler. The little subtitle already said. Oh, I guess it did. <laughs> and then here's another thing I like about this verse as well. The angels are taking hold of their hand, right? The angels are grabbing them by the hand and moving outside the city. We already know that Lot, Lot was hesitating. He was lingering. So there's probably a little bit of resistance. We don't know that the wife and the children, the daughters, were breaking down the door to get out either because they're having to be dragged out, right? So they're all in the hands of angels being dragged out of the city. So there's probably some resistance, some hesitation to going. But if an angel grabs you by the hand, there's not a whole lot you can do about it, right? If the angel grabs you by the hand, you're probably not going to be, rest, be able to rest yourself free. You're probably at the mercy of the angel holding onto your hand, taking you out. How much more in God's hand? How much more when we're in God's hand? If you know that verse in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, it says this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 28. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Just as Lot would not be able to break his grip from the angels, just as his wife would not be able to break the grip, just as the daughters would not be able to break the grip, how much more so if God's got his hand on us and he's pulling us, he's holding us. There's nothing going to be able to pull us free. God's going to hold on to us. Next verse, verse 17. Somebody might reading that. So it came to pass when he had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains. Lest you be destroyed. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Some versions have escape there. Some versions have run. Some versions have flee. This Hebrew word is malet. It appears five times in this narrative as we're discussing here. And I love this because you actually have in this verse, you can paraphrase this, run for your lives, head for the hills. You see that? That's right there in those verses. And depending on the translation, you go, you, you can find this. Mm -hmm. New Living Translation actually has run for your lives. Run for the hills. God's word translation has run for the hills there. So you can find those two phrases that we're familiar with outside the Bible in our everyday speech. You know, run for the hills or run for your lives. Those things, you can find those both in this verse. I kind of have fun with that. Sorry. A little too much fun. Here's another thing as well. That word that I said there that is that's translated either escape or run or flee, malat or malat, it's a play on words with Lot's name. All right, there's a sound thing that goes on, and it's a play on words in a sense. And the funny thing is that even though it means escape or flee or run, Lot's doing anything but that right now. All right, he's planting his feet, he's dragging his feet, he's getting dragged out of his house and outside of the city. So Lot is not doing what the sound, the play, the play on words is, is suggesting he should be doing. All right, so what does Lot say in verse 18? Somebody might read in that. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lord. So they're telling him, get out of here. And he says, please know, my lords. He says, oh, no, my lords, in the ESV and the NASB. He's resisting, right? He doesn't want to leave. Verse 19, somebody might read that. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtakes me and I die. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. Remember how we had in the last chapter, Abraham bargaining with God? Here Lot is bargaining with the angel. 
he's beginning in this verse and it's going to move on into the next couple of verses how he's starting to bargain with hey hey can you do something different other than what you had planned all right is kind of where we're going with that and again we see that word escape so again the author's kind of poking at lot a little bit saying you should be getting out of here your name sounds like this you should be leaving now ron's version there says the disaster all right the disaster new king james version says some evil genesis 19:19 niv says this disaster what is he talking about what is he referring to? What disaster? Um, yeah, the pending destruction of the city, right? The pending destruction of Sodom. Good. And so his instructions are to head for the hills, run for the hills, run for the mountains. And he goes, I can't get to the mountains. I'm afraid I'll be destroyed before I get there. I'm afraid this pending disaster, this looming disaster that's coming, will engulf me before I even get to the hills. So what does he say in the next verse? Verse 20. Somebody mind reading that one? Look, here is a town near enough to run to. And it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So here we have the continuation of the negotiations. He's going, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it to the hills. Hey, 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 I know of a little tiny town over there. Can I just go to that little tiny town? Can I go to the town and have that satisfy, you know, the requirement that I leave this city? Can I just go over there instead of running to the hills? Because I'm afraid, you know, I won't be able to make it. All right. So he's doing this bargaining thing. Here's one of the things, too. Judgment is coming, and he's arguing about the escape route. He's arguing about, do I really have to go far? You know, can I, can I just give the minimum? Don't we sometimes do that? When God says, I need a big response from you, and we sometimes go, can I just give the minimum? How, how little can I get away with? You know, how little can my commitment be, and I still be satisfying what you're asking of me? These verses in here, picturing Lot as not moving fast, as not getting out, as not fleeing, they're in contrast to the motion that you see happening with Abraham in the last chapter. This chapter is about Lot not moving, Lot moving slow, Lot hesitating. If you remember from the last chapter, remember when these strangers appeared in front of Abraham and he ran to meet them. And remember, he convinced them to come and have a meal and then he hurried. And then he said to his wife, quickly, make some bread. And then he ran to the herd and he, and he got a, a choice calf and then he ended up taking it to a man. He hastened to have the man prepared. Abraham was a man of action. He was responding before anything was asked of him. Lot is being told what to do, and he's hesitating. We need to be reminiscent of Abraham in our actions, and more so than Lot. We should be responding to God before he ever asks, rather than Lot, who's being told what to do, and he hesitates, and he drags his feet. All right, so he's got this little city in mind that he wants to escape to. This little city... We don't know the name of it yet. We're going to end up finding the name of it in verse 22. But he says, there's this little city over there. Can I just go over there and have that satisfy my requirement to get out to run to the hills? All right. Somebody mind reading verse 21 as he continues this discussion, this negotiation? He said to him, behold, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Thank you, Levette. So here we have the angel responding to Lot's request. Can I just go over that little city? And what does the angel do? Does he say, no, I told you to get to the hills. Is that what he says? Is that what the angel says? What does the angel say? He says, okay, all right, I'll let you go to the city. And he basically, he still wants to encourage him to keep moving because what? Because I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. There's judgment coming, all right? And he's saying, I'm going to spare that city. I'll, that city will be okay for you to go to, all right? Victor P. Hamilton says this regarding this verse. Victor P. Hamilton is a commentator. He's a theologian. He ends up saying regarding this verse, to Lot's request, the angel acquiescence. 
He withdraws his earlier ultimatum that Lot flee as far as the hills and modifies his plan to overthrow every settled territory of the plain. And so speaking, Lot resembles the Abraham of chapter 18. In response to Abraham's plea, Yahweh agreed not to destroy the entire population of Sodom if a righteous nucleus was living there. Here, Lot too persuades a divine representative to scale down his intentions. All right. So the angel, as it ends there in verse 21, the angel says what? He says, I will not overthrow this city which you have spoken. Verse 22, somebody might read that one. Flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. All right, so we got the name of the city now. The town is called Zoar, okay? And here we go. Here's some of that verse opening right up by saying hurry and escape, right? These are words of action. These are words of get, get yourself out of here. The hurry, that word there for hurry, it reminds me of a passage from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8 says this, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. All right. Paul takes those same words, that same passage, and he adds to them. And in Paul's reference, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, he ends up saying this, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. And then Paul adds, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When Lot is told by the angel, hurry, there's an imminence. There's a now, right? It's don't delay anymore. It's don't hesitate anymore. Take action. And in the same kind of vein, this hurry, this idea of hurry, it's about salvation and it's about make your decision right here, right now about your salvation. This is not something to put off. This is not something, oh, I'll take care of it later. Lot, you can't take care of this later. Get out now. Hurry. Just as we, talking to our unsafe friends, can't say, okay, you know what, that's fine. You know, we had a good discussion for today. You know, just make a decision to follow Christ sometime in your life before you die, you know. No, it's now. You do, you're not promised tomorrow. You're not even promised your next breath. Your decision needs to be made, and it needs to be made now. There's an urgency. Make your decision to follow Christ now. No, don't wait for that, you know, deathbed opportunity that you may never get. All right? And then there's that idea of escape right there. Escape. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3, about another escaping another judgment to come. And this is a judgment that we're all still in our time frame looking forward to. Not really looking forward to it, but it's still future, if you know what I mean. Where it says in 1 Thessalonians verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 2 through 3, For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The lingering, the not being aware of what's going on, they shall not escape. Lot, pay attention to what's going on. Take action. Hurry, or you shall not escape. All right, that kind of thing. Hurry, escape. And then the angel says, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. What does that statement apply when the angel says, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there? What does that imply? What are some things that that might imply? Just, he said, instructions, preconditions. Good. The angel's been given instructions with preconditions, with parameters. All right, good. Anything else? What else? Kind of along the same lines there. That he can do something eventually. He can do something at the right time. So you've got the angel. You know he's been instructed. He's got some preconditions. He's got some parameters to operate within. But he can do something at the appropriate time. What do you suppose it is that he can do? Destroy the city or validate that the city's ready to be destroyed. Absolutely. If you look at the verse before, what did he say over there regarding his action? I will not overthrow the city, basically, until you get there. All right. So he was talking about overthrowing the city. His role is, uh, you know what? I'm sent here to overthrow. <laughs> All right. 
Ooh, yeah. So he can do something, and that something is he can destroy the city. He can overthrow the city at the appropriate time. By the way, that word for overthrow there can sometimes be used to describe an earthquake. Just moving on. All right. right. Uh, Kenneth Matthews ends up saying regarding verse 22, he ends up saying, the divine timetable for destruction is temporarily suspended for the outworking of divine grace. What does that mean? It means that the judgment that's to come upon Sodom, the angel saying is going to be held back in time until Lot gets to the other city. So there's a moment, there's a window of grace before destruction falls. There's destruction that's coming. (laughs) It's assured. It's still yet future, but is temporarily suspended in God's graciousness. And there's a window of grace extended to the beneficiaries. That's where we are are is exactly right. We're in that same spot. We're in that window of grace. In this story, does that window of grace stay open very long? No, it doesn't. How marvelous a window of grace we've been given now. But who's to say when that window is going to be closed? We don't know. The window of grace closes suddenly in this story. The window of grace in our lives, in our time frame, may close suddenly as well. Just like the day of the Lord might suggest, or the coming of the Son of Man. You look at passages like that, and it's sudden. It's even unexpected for those who are unaware. Just like in the days of Noah. Exactly right. Just like the days of Noah. Jesus used the days of Noah. He used the days of Lot to be an illustration of what we're living in. That they're going about their business. They're just doing their daily routine. They don't even know destruction's coming upon them, and it hits them completely out of blue. They don't even know. All right, so this name, the name of the city here is what? What's the name of the city? Zoar. Have we seen Zoar before? Zoar showed up one other time. Open to Genesis 14.2, and it lists some city names over there. And I want you to read to me the city names that you see over in Genesis chapter 14, verse 2. You don't have to read the king's names, but the city names. Sodom. All right, so we got Sodom. Gomorrah. Gomorrah. Adma. Adma, am I spelling these correctly? You guys check me out on these. <laughs> Zeboim. Zeboim. And Bella, which is Zoar. And Bella, which is Zoar. Why is that city given two names there in that chapter, in that verse? What's the original name? Bella. Bella. What did it get changed to? Zoar. When did it get changed? After this event. After this event is exactly right. It gets changed to the, to the name Zoar. Zoar actually is a play on words. It means tiny place. So when Lot says, hey, there's a tiny place, there's a tiny city over there, that's the impetus, the seed that gives rise to the eventual naming of that place as Zoar. All right? So originally it was known as Bella, but it ends up being called Zoar. Okay? Verse 23, somebody mind reading that one? The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. So here we have another time statement. The sun had risen up upon the earth. So it sounds like... It's no longer dawn now. The sun's going up. All right. It's, it's making some progress through the sky. Lot finally enters Zoar. All right. Presumably with his wife, presumably with his two daughters. Maybe, maybe not, because uh, we're going to end up seeing a little bit that one of them is affected. But uh, one of the things that we get from this is that we know the judgment's coming upon Sodom. All right. It's going to be in the daytime. It's going to be a punishment in the daytime for what was done in the nighttime. You remember the event in the nighttime, right? <laughs> the momentous evening in Sodom. Ooh, wickedness going on in the nighttime. But you know what? cover of darkness doesn't hide it from God's view. All right? God sees that kind of stuff going on. And he sends judgment in the daytime. This kind of reminds me of the uh, passage in Luke chapter 12, verse 3, where Jesus says, those words that you've spoken in the night, that you've spoken in darkness, they'll be broadcast in the daytime. 
all right? And when those secret words are broadcast, what happens? People are able to hear and people are able to judge. Judge you as your character when those words come out. It's kind of the same kind of thing, all right? Sins committed at nighttime get exposed and uh, end up being judged in the daytime. Verse 24, somebody might read that one. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the heavens on Sodom and Gomorrah. Good job. Fire and burning sulfur. Anybody else have some other words there? Different versions have different phrases there. We've got a brimstone and fire over here. All right. So brimstone and fire, good. ESV has sulfur and fire. NIV has burning sulfur. The word brimstone, you've probably heard that only in connection with sermons or that you've heard in connection with the reading of God's word. The word brimstone is basically another word for sulfur. Okay. And most of us are familiar with sulfur. Is Sulfur is, I mean, what do you think of first when I say sulfur? Rotten eggs, good, and a match, all right? So it's got a nasty smell, and it's something you could start a fire with, all right? Sulfur is a, it's a mineral that can actually be found in rock form, and it burns, all right? It's a burning rock, all right? So you, that's, quite a, that's quite an ingredient for this kind of story right here. So brimstone or sulfur, uh, yeah, you can have burning rock in, in this fire mentioned. Early version of napalm. There you go. That's, that's kind of what you got there, you know? <laughs> Victor B. Hamilton says regarding this verse, the twofold use of yod heh vav reinforces the fact that the disaster that struck Sodom and its environs was not a freak of nature. Rather, it was sent deliberately by Yahweh himself. The verse adds further that the disaster was sent from Yahweh in heaven. I mentioned also in the other places uh, that we looked at the word overthrow in verse 21, and we're going to end up seeing that word overthrow in verse 25. That can also be used to describe an earthquake. This area down there in that Salt Sea area, the Dead Sea area, it's an area that's very active geologically, all right? And you remember from chapter 14, remember in chapter 14 uh, when it listed those names right there and remember the kings, the coalition came down and there was this, you know, fight that was going on. One of the things that mentioned about the geology of the area, do you remember the bitumen pits? All right, the pits of asphalt. You don't have that just occurring anywhere. It happens in an area that's geologically active, all right? So you've got these tar pits or these bitumen pits, all right? You've got this idea of an earthquake. It's in a valley where there's known faults that are down there. And now you've got this element of sulfur, all right, and this burning fire that's going to be end up uh, coming down at, um, that we read about in this verse right here. You've got a lot of stuff going on where God can actually use the structure in that environment of the geology of the area to accomplish his goal of bringing judgment upon them. And so the speculation is maybe there was an earthquake that allowed for a release of either magma, a, a, a small volcanic eruption of some sort. You have the release of gases that were flammable. You have the release of this bitumen that's already in the area that we already know about. That stuff burns. You've got all these nasty things that could certainly be used by God to bring judgment upon this area. Here's another thing as well. I mentioned that sulfur comes in a stone form. It's not uncommon to mine it. You can find it in, in the forms of stone, okay? Go to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. And as you're going there, let me remind you of something. Going back to last week, what was the main sin in this story in Genesis chapter 19 that we saw, that we were offended by, that God's offended by? What was the main sin that's being discussed? Homosexuality, homosexuality homosexual behavior. You have the men of the city pounding on the door going, we want those men inside, we want to sleep with them, we want to have sex with them. And Lot comes out and he says, don't do so wickedly. Right? He appeals to them, trying to, trying to convey to them, this is wickedness. And then you remember we turn to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. What does Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 say? If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death, 
their blood will be on their own heads. Excellent. Thank you. They shall be put to death. What was the form of death? It doesn't say in that verse, but if you look at verse 2 and 27, there's a this chapter is filled with a whole bunch of sins that they're capital offenses in God's eyes. Capital offenses in God's eyes, and he prescribes the punishment specifically at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. In verse 2 and in verse 27, what is the form of death? Stoning. Stoning. Sulfur. Hmm. Sulfur stones. Sulfur stones being thrown by God from heaven. It sounds like God is judging them, not outside of the parameters that he's already told us is going to be the form of judgment. All right. So Leviticus wasn't written yet by this time, but at least God's word is consistent. And it's so consistent that you see the judgment. Even when God meets out judgment, it's in the form that he prescribes. I think that's pretty consistent, pretty neat to see the consistency of God's word in that way. It seems like their judgment for their sin, that judgment was death. The punishment for death was stoning. All right, moving on. Genesis chapter 19, verse 25. Somebody mind reading that? Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. So here we have a plural. It's not just Sodom that's getting punished here, right? It's not just Sodom that's getting judged by God here. It's a plural. Cities plural. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 23. This is going to list the cities. Deuteronomy 29, verse 23. Your Bible has Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 5th book of the Bible, chapter 29, verse 23. Somebody mind reading me the cities? Sodom, Gomorrah, Sodom, Gomorrah Adma, Zeboim. Oh, that's interesting. There's five cities in the plain, but only four are destroyed. The last one on the list doesn't get destroyed. Bella, which ends up being renamed Zoar. Why isn't Bella destroyed? Because Lot was there. The angel granted that. Zoar was supposed to have been destroyed. Zoar was on the hit list. And because there was a negotiation between Lot and the angel, and the angel allowed Lot to go to the city and says, I won't destroy that city. You'll be safe going there instead of the mountains. Zoar gets saved. Zoar survives while the other four got destroyed. That's kind of weird. That's kind of weird, and this goes along the lines of what we saw last week, that there can be a small righteous remnant that can be a preservative for a larger wicked population. That a small group devoted to God can affect the, the survival of a larger group that's on the hit list. Ooh, that's kind of ominous. That's kind of a big deal. All right, moving on from there. Verse 26, how many am I reading that? The Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Oh! <laughs> Oops! Almost made it so close. Why did she look back? What are some of the reasons she might look back? Curiosity. Curiosity. Could be curiosity. What's another possibility? Scared. Could be scared, yeah. I mean, again, we're just doing the speculation thing, so we don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us why. Family or friends that she loved. Yeah, could be she had connections there too. Maybe she doesn't get to play bridge with her best friend anymore. You know? <laughs> Maybe she's looking back just to make sure. Did it actually happen? Is it all gone? Yeah, we don't know. We're speculating. Want to see a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say everybody wants to see a train wreck? I actually said a lot of people. Okay. A lot of people want to see a train wreck. Okay. All right. There is that human nature part of us, right? 
you, you watch boxing for the knockout. You watch the car race for the crash. Yeah, I get that. Okay, all right. That's, yeah, so she looks back. She seems to almost make it. She gets out of the city. She doesn't face the judgment of somebody who stayed in the city, but she doesn't make it the whole way. This reminds me of those words of Jesus where he ends up saying, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and turns, who looks back and isn't fit for the kingdom. All right? What is the similarity there? The similarity is set your focus on what is ahead. It's not looking back, reminiscing or yearning or longing for what's back there. It's about keep focused on moving forward. Keep focused on moving ahead to the destination God wants you to be heading to. All right, verse 27. Somebody might read that. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Excellent. Good job, Gabriela. This is where Abraham had been the day before. If you remember when Genesis 18 ended, when the negotiation ended, when they were standing at that place that you could look down and see all those miles away, that area that he knew his nephew was living. And he's standing in that same place, now looking down. Did it really happen? What does it say in verse 28? Yep, it really happened. What do you suppose is going through Abraham's mind right now? Because he doesn't know. He doesn't know if his nephew made it or not. The last he heard was that God would not destroy that city if there were ten righteous people. And he wakes up and the city's destroyed. Probably weren't ten righteous people. Is probably what he's thinking. <laughs> he doesn't know that God extended extra graciousness in pulling out the less than ten. And providing an escape for the less than ten. He doesn't know that. Verse 29, somebody might read that. God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here we have in this verse, Abraham's remembering his nephew Lot, and we have God remembering Abraham. We find out from this verse, the reason that Lot was saved wasn't due to his own righteousness. It was his tie to the man who interceded for him, who provided an opportunity to be connected to the Lord of the universe. We are not too dissimilar from that. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 says this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That includes me. That includes you. If you're not connected to Abraham, you can be connected to Abraham. You don't have to be related to him by blood. You're related to him by faith. And then it goes on to verse 14. It says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Lot was connected because he was related by blood. We're connected because we're related by faith. When we align ourselves in faith, not in Abraham, but in God, we have that same relationship with God afforded to us. Verse 30, somebody might read in verse 30. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. They lived in a cave. How far are they fallen, right? In status, in wealth. Do you remember the reason why Lot and Abraham had to separate? They both had so much. When it comes to possessions and the forms of herds of cattle and donkeys and all kinds of animals, there wasn't enough room, there wasn't enough water to sustain the wealth of the, both of these men. 
And they had to separate because of that, because there was so much wealth that they both had. And now what is Lot reduced to? He's living in a cave. He's lost everything except for his two daughters. He and his two daughters in a cave. Oh, that's a long way to fall. What about this whole story then? The whole destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we touched on just a little bit earlier. This is a model for us. This is a picture for us. And we're going to end with these two passages. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 30, and I'll just read it real quick. This is Jesus talking. He says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Telling us this story is not just a picture of the past. This story is a picture of something still yet future. And then 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 says this. I'm sorry, I'll just read verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. They're serving as an example, Peter says. The stories of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example that God judges sin. They serve as an example that there's a window of grace that's open right now, but there's no promise it'll stay open. We're now, like we were already discussing, we're living in that moment when the windows are still open. We don't know how much longer we have. All right, Make the most of this life here on earth, this brief vapor of a life that we've been given by God. Make the most in doing for Him, bringing Him glory, All right, living for God. All right, Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to make a difference in the lives of people around us that don't know you yet. We pray that you would use us, find us to be useful instruments in your hands. Fill our mouths, Lord, with words of grace, words of love, words of warning, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, in the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.